Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study together today. We pray that your spirit will join us, that we can see you more clearly and our hearts will be transformed to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in our quarterly, The Fruit of the Spirit. And the title of the lesson this week is, The Fruit of the Spirit is Patience. And if someone would read for us the memory text, please. For you have needed endurance or patience, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And if you if you read the first paragraph in the lesson, it talks about two Greek words used to uh, to define patience in Scripture. One connotes endurance in trial, and the other long suffering. Do you see a difference in these two aspects? Endurance and, and then long suffering? Or do you see those different? Do they connote something different to you? Does it feel different to you? Well, in the lesson, the last two paragraphs, it says A patient person is mild, gentle, constant in all circumstances. The real test of patience is not in the waiting, but in how one behaves while waiting. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James 1 4. Reaching this point in one's life takes practice, takes God's grace, and takes a willingness to put aside self and surrender to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The good news is that if we learn patience, we are in a position to receive many other blessings from God as well. So the question, how do we develop patience? Through long suffering? Yes, and as I was thinking about this, uh, in anything we want to develop, doesn't it take practice? And in order to practice patience, what does that necessarily require? Trials. Trials. <laughs> Difficulties. Things that would test your patience. So I guess that maybe that's what the scripture means, that we should count it a joy when trials come, because it's an opportunity to practice. Practice developing Christ-like uh, deportment and attitudes and, and heart. Are there practical things, though, as I was reading the lesson this week, I was thinking, are there practical things we can do to prepare ourselves for the time of trial so that when the t- trials come, we'll be more in a better position to be able to exercise patience. You know, all the fruits of the Spirit that we're talking about this lesson are really the natural result of our humanity operating as God originally designed it to operate. If we were in the Garden of Eden still, without sin, we would naturally have all those fruits of the Spirit, wouldn't we? Yeah, so... As you see those, those fruits, recognize, hey, that's what happens normally. That's what happens naturally when we operate like God designed. We're not operating always like God designed. And when we think about this on a neurological level, it's when the prefrontal cortex, as part of our brain right before our forehead, is healed and restored to have the proper governance over the rest of our being. That we, and when our limbic system, we talked about that last night in our, our lecture, is not in dominance. So the question is, what... Activities Are there activities, specific things we can do in life that will prepare our, ourselves, that will actually alter how our brains develop so that we will be in a position to be more patient? Are there specific things we can do that can enhance prefrontal cortex health and keep our limbic system where we get our impulses and irritability and mood? I'll give you a quick example. You're on the way home and somebody cuts you off on the interstate and you get that aggressive, irritable urge to say an ugly word or something. That's limbic system. But if you go, wait a minute, you know, I'm a Christian, I don't behave that way, and you restrain yourself, that's prefrontal cortex. 
Are there things we can do that can help our brains develop so that we're in a better position when the trials come? Yes. We can simply follow the laws of health. Ah. When we encounter stress during our routine, whether it's youth stress, like getting married, or distress, like the death of a spouse, the, the, the hormone reaction is the same as what happens during uh, aerobic exercise. So if we are if we are in better fitness, we are better able to encounter the, those hormonal changes and return to a normal state more quickly. Number one thing on my list here was promote good physical health. The first thing on my list. So absolutely right. I just want to clarify one thing, though. Aerobic exercise provides something for us that, that stress doesn't provide. And, and during, uh, I mean, a lot of physical benefits, but um, one of the uh, uh, interleukins, interleukin-10, elevates during aerobic exercise. Interleukin-10 suppresses the inflammatory uh, factors that come during stress. So good physical aerobic exercise actually is protective from all the damage that comes from stress. That's really kind of cool. So, yes, good physical health, regular exercise, diet, water, sunshine, all these things to give us good physical health. That will help our brains be in better balance. Other things besides that. Blessing. It's a good idea to practice blessing other people. Blessing. Blessings come back to you. Oh, I like that. So having a, a, a loving, altruistic, other-centered, and thankful heart. Yes, that, that actually has been demonstrated to activate prefrontal cortex. That's an exercising of the prefrontal cortex. It takes prefrontal cortex to do those types of activities. So you're exercising them. And just like exercising the muscles in your arm, they get stronger when you do. And that calms the fear centers, the stress centers. So that's excellent. Yeah. Other things. Always looking at the events that happen in the big picture instead of the immediate. So you see the, the whole something that happens to you that's be very stressful and, and you don't have patience for it. How, how does this relate to the big picture? Okay, she's talking about when events happen to step back and not just get caught in the moment, but step back and say, what's happening on the larger scale? What's happening uh, in my community, in my whole family, in the great controversy, the, the bigger picture? That is a requirement to exercise your prefrontal cortex. You can't abstract. You can't expand your view if you're not reasoning, if you're not thinking. So that, again, is bringing the prefrontal cortex online. Something very basic and simple, though. Some simple things. Seven to eight hours of sleep a night. If you cut your sleep short, it actually impairs prefrontal cortex function. You know the old wives' tale, don't go to, to, to bed angry at your spouse? Actually, if it's something real simple that can be resolved very quickly, sure. If it's going to take a dialogue and a discussion, it's actually better to say, hey, I love you. Let's go to sleep. I'm frustrated right now. Got some issues we need to work out. But let's sleep on it and talk about it in the morning. The reason for that is fatigue or sleep deprivation impairs prefrontal cortex function. So the limbic system becomes more disinhibited. You're more irritable. You're less reasonable. And you're more likely to say things you don't mean. And it causes more problems rather than solutions. You sleep on it. You wake up refreshed the next morning. Prefrontal cortex is online. You're going to be able to problem solve much better and not let the, the things that, that you wish you wouldn't say, come out. Of course, avoid alcohol, toxic substances, drugs, damage prefrontal cortex. And we, we went through this last night in our lecture last night, theatrical television watching. Theatrical television watching over develops the limbic system circuits, underdevelops prefrontal cortex, and makes it harder for us to have good patience. We're more irritable. We're more moody. But what about believing lies about God? Something like believing lies about God, that wouldn't really alter our prefrontal cortex and limbic system, wouldn't, would it? How would believing lies about God alter our brain in that way? 
It would make us fearful. When we believe lies, it incites fear. Fear is part of the limbic system. Fear paralyzes prefrontal cortex. We don't think good. Just think about somebody you know who's had test anxiety or public speaking anxiety. When they get fearful and stand up in public, do they think fluidly and freely or do they freeze? You see? Fear freezes thinking. And so as we believe lies about God that incite fear... We don't think as well. We turn off prefrontal cortex. We overdevelop the limbic system circuits. So let's just take an aside for a minute and just throw out a couple of things that maybe you might have heard that if we're true would make you afraid of God. Ever heard anything that would make you afraid of God? Eternal burning hell. Is, is eternal burning hell the only version that would make you afraid of God? Which is worse, eternal burning hell where God has to use his power to keep you alive in the flames as long as you deserve before he kills you. Which is worse? Well, why is the second one actually worse than the first one? See, we traditionally teach that the, the, second, the first one, the eternal burning hell, is worse than, than a time-limited hell where God only imposes the suffering you deserve for your sins committed in, the, in this world. But you understand where the eternal burning hell doctrine comes from. It comes from a misunderstanding about the nature of man. People who teach this have an assumption that when God created mankind in the Garden of Eden, at the time of man's creation, before they sinned, he invested them with immortality. There was some part of them that could never die. Called a soul, called a spirit, they call it different things, but there's an aspect of our being that is immortal at creation in the Garden of Eden. And then when mankind sinned, Oh, God's heart is broken. He didn't want that to happen. Uh, but now that they sinned, if they're not reconciled to him, they're still immortal. They have to go somewhere. He, he hates it. It tears them up. He doesn't want them to suffer. But his hands are tied. They're immortal. They're going to have to suffer somewhere. Eternal burning hell. Because of a misunderstanding about the nature of man. Our version, though, how many of us believe that we have some part of us that's immortal that will live forever? We don't believe that. We believe the gift of God is eternal life. So then what would it mean if we have a day coming in which we stand in the presence of God, and we think about this for a moment, if a nuclear warhead exploded in this room, how long would we suffer? Would you even know it happened? No. You would be vaporized so fast there was no time to process anything. You wouldn't feel a thing. Now, what do you think is more powerful? The, the matter that gets turned into energy that causes a nuclear explosion, or the God who created the matter? So, if God is going to use his divine power of flames to destroy us, and we live for days on end before we die, doesn't that mean he's using miraculous power to torture us before he kills us? Which is worse? Which makes you more frightened of God? So we have to have a better explanation than that. And frankly, what I just said, I don't believe that God performs miracles to keep people alive in the flames to torture them. I think we've misunderstood this whole thing. And there's a blog on our website to explain this called The Question of Punishment Part 3. But we can incorporate all the scriptures. There is flames. There is fire. Uh, but God isn't performing miracles to keep us alive to torture us. We can make all sense of it. But let's go on to another one. The problem with sin is that God is mad, and if Christ isn't there to protect us from God, we're going to be in trouble. Has anybody ever heard anything that sounds like that? Is the problem with sin God's attitude towards us? No. No. When mankind sinned in the garden, did God's attitude towards mankind change? God was loving. 
He was kind. He was gracious. But man sinned and now he's angry. He's wrathful. He's upset. He's mean. He needs somebody to change his attitude. No, his attitude, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. There is no change in the attitude of God. So this idea, however subtle it's woven into our thinking, incites fear. Fear inflames the limbic system, paralyzes prefrontal cortex, makes it harder for us to have patience. How about God sent an earthquake to punish Haiti? Anybody heard that this week? Does that instill a sense of peace and trust in God or fear? God sent AIDS to punish homosexuals. Ever heard that? Yeah, there's all kinds of things that we hear. Okay, other things we can do to help help with our, our balance of our brain. Meditation on God's character of love actually causes the prefrontal cortex to grow stronger, calms the fear circuits. Perfect love casts out fear. Good brain science on this. Altruistic endeavors, which was mentioned back there, uh, blessing people, caring for people, causes prefrontal cortex to grow stronger, calms the fear circuits. Keeping and living a life that's in harmony with God's principles of love. When we lie, when we cheat, when we exploit other people, well, just think this through. If you're cheating on your spouse, will you have more peace or more fear? If you're stealing from your employer, embezzling money, more peace or more fear? See, when we, when we do this stuff, we have terrible fear. We're going to get caught. We're going to get punished. We're going to get exposed. Our conscience convicts us. It, it get, we get guilt. This stirs up the limbic system and pairs prefrontal cortex. So this is why we live in harmony with God's principles, because it is health. It is life to us. Now, here's one for the students in here. Overstudy. Overstudy damages prefrontal cortex. Did you know that? I bet they don't teach you this one in school, do they? <laughs> And I'm not the first person who came up with this. This is out of a book called Child Guidance. Maybe you heard of it. 396. It says, intemperance in study is a species of intoxication. And those who indulge in it, like the drunkard, wander from the safe path and stumble and fall in the darkness. The Lord would have every student bear in mind that the eye must be kept single to the glory of God. He is not to exhaust and waste his physical and mental powers in seeking to acquire all possible knowledge of the sciences, but is to preserve the freshness and vigor of all his powers. Do they teach you in, in school to, to not overstudy? Take a break? Go out and do some exercise in between those hours at the books? It's important. It's important for good brain health that we do that. So things we can do, simple things we can do to help prepare ourselves for the time of trial. We can exercise. We can eat healthy. We can get uh, you know, sunshine and water and, and regular sleep and avoid poisons and toxins to our system and, and avoid theatrical entertainment and avoid overtaxing the mind with too much study come back to a true knowledge of God. Meditate on his character regularly. How about trust God with your future? How about that one? Engage in service to other people and live in harmony with God's law. I mean, these are all very things we can do, and it actually has a physical health-promoting, brain-health-promoting effect on us. What do you all think about that? Do you like the fact that this is not some arbitrary thing God said do it or else? That what he tells us has real life consequences on our well-being. A sense of humor. A sense of humor. Oh, that's a great one too. Sense of humor is a, is, a, is a healthy thing for us. And it does require some processing of the prefrontal cortex to have a good sense of humor. It's absolutely true. Merry heart. Do us good. Like a medicine. Calms the fear circuits. I didn't put that one down. Write that one down. Yeah, humor. That's good. Sunday's lesson. Somebody read the memory verse at the top of the lesson, please. 
And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And the first two paragraphs describe God's dealing with Nineveh and how patient he was. What do you think about how patient God was with Nineveh and having and believing in a God who is patient? What, is, what are your thoughts about that? Does that encourage you? Gives you hope? Yeah. Was, when we think about God's patience, when this whole war in heaven, this controversy with evil, when Lucifer began his rebellion, was God patient in heaven with Lucifer? Yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna, uh, I'll read you just out of a, a paragraph here out of the book, Great Controversy. And we're going to ask the question, we're going to first demonstrate God's patience. Then we're going to ask the question, how can God's patience actually be flipped against him to make him look bad? You think, how could that happen? It happens. Let's just look at this. God, in his great mercy, bore long with Lucifer. He was not immediately degraded from his exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, nor even when he began to present his false claims before the loyal angels. What is it called when you present false claims about another person? Lying or bearing false witness. And what will, what will we call bearing false witness? Breaking the Ten Commandments, right? Will we call that sin? So is, is Lucifer sinning here when he's bearing false witness against God in heaven? Keep that in mind. Watch what happens. Long was he retained in heaven. Again and again, he was offered pardon on the condition of repentance and submission. Wait, where's the blood payment? Where is the substitutionary death penalty being paid for somebody for Lucifer to be pardoned? It's not there. What's that about? I'll leave that one for you to meditate on. Such efforts as infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. The spirit of discontent had never before been known in heaven. Lucifer himself did not at first see where he was drifting. He did not understand the real nature of his feelings. But as his disaffection was proved to be without cause, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong. That the divine claims were just and that he ought to acknowledge them before all of heaven. Had he done thus, he might have saved himself and many angels. Though he had forsaken his position as covering cherub, yet he had been, had he been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied uh, to fill his appointed place in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office. What about that? No payment? No appeasement? No blood substitutionary death? How do we figure that out? Hmm. But it says pride forbade him. He persistently defended his own course and maintained he had no need of repentance. So do we see God being patient with Lucifer? Incredibly. How, does, how could Lucifer twist that against God? I mean, you wouldn't think that could be twisted, would you? What he was doing wasn't so bad because God wasn't doing anything Ah, see, when you have that model that the problem is the, the person in charge, if he doesn't take action, then there must not be anything wrong. So we must not be doing anything bad because God isn't doing anything about it. And there won't be any consequences. There won't be any consequences, you see. So this is, uh, that first quotation was out of Great Controversy 495. This is out of Patriarchs and Prophets 39. A compassionate creator in yearning Pity for Lucifer and his followers was seeking to draw them back from the abyss of ruin into which they were about to plunge. But his mercy was misinterpreted. Lucifer pointed to the long-suffering of God, his patience, 
as an evidence of his own superiority, an indication that the king of the universe would yet accede to his terms. So God's being patient. Lucifer says he's weak. We're going to win. Don't, don't, don't turn back. Don't repent. Hmm. What do you think about that? Does it happen today? If someone makes allegations against you and you patiently allow things to unwind and unfold, can your patience be turned against you? Wait, must have something to hide. Must be something going on. Hmm. And there's another way God's patience can be turned against him. If you turn to Friday's lesson, somebody read for us with a good, nice, strong voice that top paragraph in Friday's lesson, which starts in his dealings with the human race. Somebody read for that for us. And look for how God's patience in this paragraph gets turned against him. In his dealings with the human race, God bears long with the impenitent. He uses his appointed agencies to call men to allegiance and offers them his full pardon if they will repent. But because God is long-suffering, men presume on his mercy. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. The patience and long-suffering of God, which should soften and subdue the soul, has an altogether different influence upon the careless and sinful. It leads them to cast off restraint and strengthens them in resistance. They think that the God who has formed so much from them will not heed their perversity. If we live in a dispensation of immediate retribution, offenses against God would not occur so often. But though delayed, the punishment is nonetheless certain. There are limits even to the forbearance of God. The boundary of his long suffering may be reached, and then he will surely punish. And when he does not, excuse me, and when he does take up the case of the presumptuous sinner, he will not cease till he has made a full end. Do you like that passage? <laughs> I don't like the end of it. It makes it sound kind of yucky. Well, that's why I read it. She said she doesn't like the end. It makes it sound kind of, kind of yucky. Before we deal with the end, let's just deal with the first question. How can God's patience be turned against him? Because of his forbearance, he's saying, I'll do what I want. As long as I live, just before I die, I'll ask for forgiveness. It's like, hey, we'll do whatever we want. And as long as we do our deathbed confession, no worries. I'll just do everything, have fun, live, party, sin to the fullest. And then right before I die, I'll have confession and get my sins forgiven and pardoned. Yes. Or it's the same argument that Satan used. You know, long enough, God God will change his mind. I mean, you know, modern day Christianity shows that he's already changed his day of worship. And he can change, his law can be changed, and his mind can be changed. Both these arguments still be using against, against God of patience. But what did you hear in this lesson, in this quotation, that can be turned to create another distortion about God? And is, actually, quite, quite readily done. What did you hear? The idea that God will run out of patience. Ah, she heard that. Did you all hear that idea in here? There's an idea that actually is not stated. She does not state God runs out of patience. But passages like this are projected to teach that God runs out of patience. Turn to Wednesday's lesson. I want you to see how this comes out. Wednesday's lesson. First two paragraphs states, No greater demonstration of patience can be found than that shown by God towards humans. But we must understand that even God's long-suffering has a limit. 
The long-suffering of God lasted for 120 years in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. But the time came when the stubbornness of the people exhausted the long-suffering of God, and he destroyed the earth with a flood. Now, jump down to the fourth paragraph. Listen to this. It might be argued that, inasmuch as God ran out of patience, this gives us permission to do the same. But when we study the history of God's long-suffering, it becomes evident that, he, that his patience was not for a day, a week, or even a year. Often generations would pass before his long-suffering would be exhausted, exhausted which, of course, is not an option for us. Is that, uh, that's like, a, are they trying to like say, okay, God can run out of patience because he's God, but because you don't live long enough, you don't get that privilege. <laughs> what about the antediluvians? Did they live more than a generation? What about the angels in heaven? Do they live longer than a generation? What about the unfallen beings on the other worlds? Does this give them permission to become impatient? To lose patience? Do you like this idea that God ran out of patience? I I don't think it's so much that God ran out of patience is the fact that he realized there was nothing more he could do. Well, you're right on the right line there, Margaret. You're absolutely right on the right line. But that's not what the lesson says, is it? The lesson says he ran out of patience. And we want to draw a distinction between how we understand those words in Friday's lesson. Because the words in Friday's lesson did not say he ran out of patience. They said there are limits even to the forbearance of God. Now the question is, what are the limits and how does God punish See, our, we are so wired, so, so, so conditioned by our tr- doctrines and upbringing to read something like, there are limits to the forbearance of God, therefore God runs out of patience. That's how we hear that. That's not what it says. What are the limits to God's forbearance? God's forbearance is our capacity to grasp and change and understand. What do you all think about that? The limits are not some limit in God, but he continues on until there is no longer any possibility that a Sinner can be reached. Well, let's take that into uh, advisement as we look at some quotes here. This is out of First Selective Messages 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character. It makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Do you think this is talking only about an earthly death? That you can do all this, cut yourself off from the channel of blessing, uh, have ruin and death in the grave and asleep, but be resurrected to eternal life? No. No. I've, uh, I've recently came across a webpage that criticized my use of this passage, saying she is only talking here about the earthly consequences of physical health problems and sleeping in the grave. Do you think that makes sense to anybody in here? So does this sound like there is a limit to God's forbearance? What would the limit be? We set the limit. Our limit, our capacity for change. Here is... Uh, of course, uh, passage from scripture. And this will tie into what we read a little while ago about the question of what did God do at Haiti? I, I, you may have known that a, a fairly famous TV personality this week came on TV and said that God punished Haiti with this earthquake because they made a pact with the devil. 
you know, I think Haitians have a certain history of voodoo and stuff, voodoo practice and cults and things down there. So this is what was said. God did this to punish them for making a pact with the devil. This is out of Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or the tree. So what are these four angels doing? What's their, what's their mission? What, how are they exerting their energy or power? Are they, are they inflicting damage? Holding back the four winds of strife. And then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Wait a minute. These four angels have been given power to harm the land and the sea. But what are they, what are they doing? Huh. So how do they harm the land and the sea? Let go. Let go of what? Let go of the four winds. What do the four winds represent? It says, do not harm a land or sea or tree until the seal of the seal is put on the foreheads of the servant, of servants of our God. Well, this is out of manuscript release page of volume 14, page 3, talking about this very thing. The end time judgments and plagues of the end time. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come out directly from God upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only safe path. Then if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack against them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be. For Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of his great power than we have ever dreamed of. Does it make a difference in how we understand God used his power from heaven to kill these people in Haiti? Or God grants us all freedom. And if we exercise our freedom to tell God, I don't want you in my life, leave me alone, stop meddling, I want to do my own thing. And then he lets us go, and tragedy comes. Is that a different thing? Yes, it's tremendously important, because if we believe God concepts that incite fear, limbic system grows stronger, prefrontal cortex can't develop, and it actually impairs a a brain hormone called oxytocin, we can't bond with God as long as we're afraid of him. If God was punishing the Haitians, what about all the peacekeeping people that were down there working that died? Collateral. Collateral damage. There you go. <laughs> yes. Just reading this quote, though, this is the quote that you read, and I didn't hear it really addresses it. I mean, this first sentence is... First of all, I'm not promoting the punishment idea. I don't believe that at all. We hadn't quite finished yet on this point, but go ahead. Well, it's the sense that no one's talked about yet. It says the boundary of the long suffering may be reached, and then he will surely punish. Yes. Yeah, that's where we're going right now. Because we have two questions. What is the limit of God's forbearance, and how does he punish? Okay. And we hadn't got there. We're just doing the limits of his forbearance right now. And then we're going to have, so it's a great question. We're going to answer it. So do, have we got a clear idea what are the limits of God's forbearance? What is it that causes him to stop forbearing or being patient or interceding? Well, let's, let's, I think there's one more, one more text here we need to read. When Satan was cast out of heaven, did Satan, when he was finally cast out of heaven, did he re- reach one of God's limits? God's patient limits and forbearing with him had been reached. Satan was finally cast out, right? 
What was the limit of that? What, what, what caused that to happen? Signs of the Times, January 9, 1879. It says, It would not have been safe to suffer any who united with Satan in his rebellion to continue to occupy heaven. They had learned the lesson of genuine rebellion against the unchangeable law of God, and this is incurable. Incurable. What's incurable mean? It can't be fixed. It can't be changed. It can't be... Re- so what was the limit of God's forbearance? That God finally lost patience? He couldn't take it anymore? He got so fur- infuriated, so frustrated, so irritated that he just blew his stack? No. Or that the, his intelligent creatures came to a point that they had destroyed within them the capacity for, for transformation and redemption. No amount of truth, no amount of love has any more impact upon them. They're incurable. They can't be changed. Is this the same that happens to the wicked in the end? So let's, uh, let's read some passages together and let's see if we can't break down this relationship between God's law, his character, his limits of his forbearance, how he punishes. Let's see if it all fits in here. God has given, and this is out of Great Controversy 539. It says, God has given in his word decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressors of his law. He will punish the transgressors. Let's see what, what this means. Those who flatter themselves that he is too merciful to execute justice upon the sinner have only to look at the cross of Calvary. So we have two strong words, two power words, punish and justice, execute justice. The death of the spotless son of God testifies that that God is angry and will get you in the end. No, testifies that, these are the words, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Is that the infliction of God, the execution of the Almighty? Is death? It doesn't say that. The wages of sin is death. That every violation of God's law must receive its, get these words, just retribution. Well, what is the retribution? Where does the retribution for breaking the law come from? I'll give you a clue. If you decide to go sleep around town with some HIV-infected prostitutes, will there be a retribution to pay? From where? If you decide to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, will it be a retribution to pay? Let's see if the let's see if the actual content here bears us out on our hypothesis here. Christ, the sinless, became sin for man. He bore the guilt of transgression and the hiding of his father's face until his heart was broken and his life was crushed out. Do we find here indicating that God was acting to punish his son and execute his son? No. Or was the father simply allowing his son? His son made a choice in harmony with the Father's will, to accept the role of our Savior. And so the Father granted him the freedom there and separated himself. My God, my God, why are you killing me, executing me? My God, my God, why are you forsaken me? This is what she says, hiding of his face. All the sacrifice was made that sinners might be redeemed. Absolutely true. In no other way could man be freed from the penalty of sin. Wait, the penalty of what? I thought it was the penalty of God. I thought he has to penalize. I thought he had to inflict penalties. Is that what it says? No, it's a penalty. Sin pays the wage. The wage is death. James chapter 1. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And every soul that refuses to become a partaker of the atonement provided at such cost must bear in his own person the guilt and punishment of transgression. The guilt and punishment. Let's talk about that briefly. I have patients who were molested as kids. And sometime in the uh, healing process, they will usually say to me something like this, I just wish my dad or my mom would, would just acknowledge and admit what they did. 
just just acknowledge it that they did it. And I said, well, let's let's take let's take that at face value. Right now, here on Earth today, if you've got a human being who maliciously abused and molested their own child, causing all types of pain and suffering, what would it mean for them to actually embrace the truth of that and own up to it? What would they experience inside themselves, though? Would there be conviction? Would there be shame? Would there be guilt? Would there be self-loathing? Would there be a terrible emotional wrestling and process to go through until they experience God's grace and experience a new heart and a right spirit and healing? Would that happen? Yes, it would happen. And remember, if they do it here, admit the truth, they get all this terrible emotions, but it's all still under the umbrella of God's grace, isn't it? His agencies, his spirit are all still working to help. What happens to those who instead hold to the lies? I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. I was the best mother I could be. Blah, blah, blah. And all these lies they they put up to hide behind. One day they're going to come face to face with all truth. They can no longer hide from the truth. Their lies don't work when we come face to face with the source of all truth. They get the full resonance in their own psyche of what what they did to their kids and what that did and the experience that it caused their children, and they get that conviction. What will that be like on that day? Hell. Hell. That's exactly right. And they get it without God's agencies trying to heal them. They get it with all the universe watching. Do you think it will be painful? Do you think there is a punishment, the guilt and punishment of transgression? Do you think it will be awful? Yes, it will be awful. Will it be inflicted by God? Or will it be their own condition coming to bear? Their own unhealed, guilty consciences that they can no longer hide from when they're in the presence of absolute truth. Okay, God has given to men the declaration of his character and his methods of dealing with sin. The Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. All the wicked he will destroy. The transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end, uh, the end of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalms 145 and 37. The power and authority of divine, of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Think that. The power and authority of divine government. What is the power to be used? Ask the question. Don't just read these words and think human power, might, force, because what does it say in Zechariah? Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Don't think our traditional might and power, because God could have destroyed Satan as easily as one cast a pebble to the ground, says. But that wouldn't have destroyed sin. The seeds of rebellion would have remained in the heart. People would have been fearful of God. So, yes, the power and authority of divine government, but what does, uh, what does Romans and Paul tell us is the power of God? It's the gospel, he says, is the power of God. It's the good news. It's the truth about God, which is the power. Keep going. Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice would be perfectly consistent, retributive justice, perfectly consistent with the character of God as a merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent being. How can retributive justice be consistent with mercy, long-suffering, and benevolence? We've just explained it. It's not an imposition. It's not something he's inflicting. It's God graciously and freely allowing the sinner to reap the consequences of unhealed sin in their own minds, hearts, and characters. It's the unavoidable end if we don't experience God regeneration now. God does not, here it goes, God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in a slavish obedience. 
He desires that the creatures of his hands shall love him because he is worthy of love. Now, think that through. He does not want slavish obedience. He doesn't force any will. Do we believe that to be true? So then, how do we interpret this idea of justice and and retribution and, and, and punishment? God is saying, hey guys, I'm love. All I've ever wanted is for you to love me. I love you so much. I send the sunshine and the rain. I send my angels to watch over and protect. I send my spirit to to transform. I sent my son to die to save you. But if you don't love me, I will torture you until you die. (laughs) You see the problem with that? Yes. How do you explain the flood? Who brought the flood of the sinners? There are two explanations that I see, and both are reasonable, and I'm open to both possibilities. One, and we have to remember the context of what was happening in the world. Is it true that after mankind sinned, after Adam and Eve sinned, that without Jesus Christ coming and completing his mission on earth, mankind would be lost? Is that true? Yes. Yes. Mankind could not be saved without Jesus Christ coming to earth and completing his mission. Did Satan know that? Yes. In the garden it said to the serpent, I will, I will say, the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So, that, so Satan knew us, Messiah was coming. Did Satan just passively then start ignoring things or did he begin actively working with all of his ingenuity and power to, if possible, obstruct the arrival of the Messiah? And at that time, how many righteous people were left on the earth? Well, how good was Satan doing in narrowing down the avenue through which the Messiah would come? He'd gotten it down to one righteous man left on the earth. God needed to act to keep open the avenue through which the Messiah would come. Now, the flood. Did Jesus say, or did the Bibles teach, that the wages of sin is sleep in the grave until resurrection? No. Is that what it teaches? No. No. What happened at the flood? Everyone who died at the flood sleeps in the grave until resurrection. It is not the wages of sin. It's not the punishment for sin. The punishment for sin is eternal non-existence. All those people are coming forward. Now, we all often assume with our fully infinite and informed minds that everyone who died in the flood was lost. We don't know that. They may be, and I'm open to that possibility. But how about, have you ever heard a story in the mission fields of a little girl who had a, had a preacher come and, and uh, she wanted to go to, to church on Sabbath morning, but daddy's the mayor of the town and he locks her in a room and won't be embarrassed by it, won't let her go? You ever heard those stories? Mm-hmm. You think maybe somebody locked her little girl, little boy in the closet and won't let him get on the ark? Could happen. We don't know. Possible. And if that child was, was put to sleep in the grave during the flood, they'll come up in the right resurrection. So the flood doesn't tell us anything about God eliminating sin or the punishment or payment for sin. It tells us about God's grace and mercy of intervening to keep open the channel for the, for the Messiah to come. And we see this all through the Old Testament. So some people have actually alleged, I've been dealing with a lot of allegations against my teaching recently, you may know that. Some people have actually alleged that I teach that God never uses power to put people in the grave, to, to in the Old Testament, put people to sleep or what we call the first death. Of course he did. I think he did in many places. Elijah calling fire down from heaven uh, on those platoons. People were put into the grave. God uses power. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, Nadab, and Abihu. Many places God did this. But this is not the same thing as the final end of sin and sinners. They're all coming up out of the grave. And we make a mistake when we correlate or equate the two. Sleep in the grave, same as eternal non-existence? No. 
And we, t- and we use God's intercessions or interventions in the Old Testament working in this terrible time. And more evidence for this. Have you noticed since the cross, since Christ has completed his mission, that God hasn't been using power to put people in the grave like he used to? We don't see floods. We don't see fire coming down from heaven and killing platoons. We don't see, uh, you know, people wiped out with these manifestations of divine glory. Do we see that since the, since the cross like we did in the Old Testament? No. We see it credited to him. Credited to him, yes, but we already read about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so why is the world so much more after the cross? The world was converted. There's no more hedonism. There's no more, there's no more violence. There's no more idolatry and Satan worship. There's no more, um, ma- uh, um, mass wars and and killing of people, none of that stuff going on, right? There's just as much wickedness after the cross as there was before the cross. But we don't see God punishing wickedness like that anymore. Why? Because Christ completed his mission. God didn't have to keep uh, these emergency measures to hold back satanic power on human agencies which were trying to obstruct Christ from coming. So that's my understanding of what was happening in Old Testament times. Yes. There's another explanation that some people give. I'm open to the possibility. I don't necessarily prefer it, but I'm open to the possibility. And that possibility is that people before the flood were engaged in activities which caused the natural result of the waters that God had above the earth to come down upon the earth, and that caused the flood. That's a possibility. I'm not preferring it, but I'm not. I'm open to that. If we get to heaven and the Lord gives us that evidence, I'll accept that. Yes. I recall reading about dinosaurs. And that they'd gotten so big and powerful and multiple that they would not, people would not have survived them. Well, I don't know, but <laughs> we got to go on and finish this. Cause we we want to we answer the question about the punishment and how this punishment comes. Um, uh, so God does not force the will. All who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. Can you be drawn to him in admiration of his attributes if you conceptualize him as somebody who's saying, love me or I'll kill you? Something's twisted in that idea, and that is commonly put forth. So the principles, now keep going, same, same uh, paragraph right after the next one. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. So when we think about this, this um, punishment that's going to come, this justice that's going to come, it's in perfect harmony with mercy, love, exemplified by the Savior. Christ declared that he taught nothing except which he had received from the Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precepts. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. The Lord bears long with the perversity of people, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny will be decided. Will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. What's the problem here? They're not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Fixed in their characters. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever in the presence of those whom they've despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to corruption. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high and holy state of perfection that exists there? 
Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains, rising in honor to God and the Lamb. Ceaseless streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of Him who sits on the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God and truth and holiness mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of the God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven, and now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. They would welcome destruction. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood... The fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Where are we back to that incurable thing again? Do we see how God punishes and what what brings the punishment? Is it some external infliction because they didn't get their, their sins pardoned and a legal penalty paid? Or is it their characters have been fixed in rebellion... They have been so practicing sin that they've destroyed the very faculties that recognize truth and and respond to love that they are incurable. They cannot be cured. So keep going. Okay. (laughs) They're incurable and so. (laughs) Okay. This is out of um, Thoughts of the Mountain Blessing, page 61. It just continues right on. God is the fountain of life and we can have life only as we are in communion with him. Separated from God, existence may be ours for a little time, but we do not have life. If you cling to self, refusing to yield your will to God, you are choosing death. To sin, wherever it is found, God is a consuming fire. If you choose sin and refuse to separate from it, the presence of God, which consumes sin, must consume you. And then Desire of Ages 2.23, the sinner's own thoughts are his accuser, and there can be no torture keener than the stings of a guilty conscience. And then Desire of Ages 107, the light of the glory of God, which imparts life to the righteous, will slay the wicked. Same light, same presence, same glory. Some are transformed, invigorated Moses coming down off the mountain, face radiating glory. Did Moses have third degree burns? Notice this fire wasn't something that actually burned up material substances. It's not what it was. Look all through scripture when God shows up. The temple, the glory, they couldn't go in. The temple didn't burn down. Um, mountain. Read the scriptures about uh, Daniel chapter 7. God, ancient of days, comes to his throne. And rivers of fire flow out through, from him. 10,000 times 10,000 are standing in it. They're not getting hurt by it. What was the vehicle Elijah took to heaven? Do you think it was painful for him? No, it was a fiery chariot. Lucifer, Ezekiel chapter 28, stood in the fiery stones in God's presence. This fire is not the fire of physical combustion. This fire is the fire of God's character. It says in Song of Solomon, last chapter, that love is like a blazing fire. A thousand rivers cannot quench it. Nothing will extinguish it. And God's presence is the presence of absolute truth and absolute love. Those of us who have been won back to love him and love his character, as we just read, are transformed by this life-giving glory. But those who have hardened their hearts in selfishness and lies, as the children of Israel, when Moses came down off the mountain, his face is radiating glory, what did the children of Israel do? Get a bad sunburn? 
No, they didn't. They started to suffer in agony. Read Patriarchs and Prophets. She says explicitly, in their conscious guilt, they could not bear the heavenly light. It was torture to them. This is what was causing suffering and torture. And so, let's put it together. Because consuming fire is going to destroy sin. This pulpit is made out of wood. My Bible is made out of paper and leather. What's sin made out of? Because the fire, uh, to sin wherever it is found, our God is consuming fire. This fire is coming to consume sin. What's it made out of? Ideas. Ideas, attitudes, thoughts, beliefs. And at its root, sin has two roots. Lies. Satan is the father of lies and selfishness, which is the opposite of love. This is sin. Lies and selfishness. Now, what is it that if you have lies in your heart, but this comes in, will burn lies out of your heart? Truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And if you're selfish, but this comes into your heart, it frees you from selfishness. Love. God is love. And so when the Spirit fell at Pentecost, it was a spirit of truth and the spirit of love. And what did they see? Tongues of fire. But no one got burned. This is what burns free. And we are longing for the day that God appears on earth and lets the fires burn free. It says in Thessalonians that, that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. But those of us in his presence are transformed and will live forever in this fire. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 14 and 15 says, The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the eternal burning? Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Next verse. He who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion, walks in the eternal burnings and and consuming fire. That's our presence with God. It's exciting. Does this make sense? Can we love a God like this, who is patiently... And by the way, before sin, what kind of clothing did Adam and Eve wear? Robes of light. Why don't we call that fire? Yeah, robes of light. What happened when they sinned? What happened to their robes? Why did their robes disappear? Where did those, that light come from? Understand that soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God veiled himself so that this world would not be destroyed by his presence. And he came in the form of his son, veiling his glory that he had with, with God so that in his appearing on earth, he would not destroy those he came to save. And he is coming again, but he will come in his glory when he comes again. And those of us who have been transformed, it says in 1 John, he says, we shall see him face to face, for we shall be like him. You see, those of us who are ready to meet him have been changed. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. We, we, we are like him in character. And it says in Revelation chapter 12, those who are ready to meet him do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not concerned with self anymore. They love others just like he does. Yes, over here. What is the answer to the question with uh, why Lucifer would have been restored and forgiven the sin, but man needs the blood sacrifice? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to answer that question? Yes. Okay. Lucifer's position in heaven, and you have to understand the context of the great controversy. Um, how did Jesus Christ appear in heaven prior to his incarnation on earth? We're all, we're all familiar with the Bible text that teaches Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. He was fully God. We're not talking that he was a created being. He's pre-existent. The Bible's clear. The Word was with God. The Word was God, so forth, in pre-existent times. So Christ is fully God in every way. But he chose to manifest himself in the appearance of an angel, one of the covering cherubs, the archangel, 
And do you know in, in Scripture it says in, in the New Testament, in Peter, it says that, um, that, that we wait until our day star dawns. Remember this? The day star? And that's referring to? Jesus Christ. Do you know that the, the um, Greek transfer translated day star is phosphorus, from which we get phosphorus, this bright, bright burning metal. In the Latin, when you translate it to Latin, the word for that is Lucifer, light bearer. Jesus and Lucifer shared a name. See, Lucifer simply means light bearer, the one who bears light. Is Jesus the light which lightens all men? And so in heaven, pre-incarnate, you had Lucifer, the created being, the son of the dawn that talks about in Isaiah, who became Satan. But you had the, the infinite God manifesting himself in the form of an angel, also known as a light bearer. And the, it, and, and, the, and the sin in heaven began because Lucifer the created alleged equality with the divine son of God. If you read the, read the, read the history, Lucifer never alleged equality with the father. He alleged the father was arbitrary and unfair for choosing Michael, the son of God, to go into meetings and councils that Lucifer, the created being, was not allowed to go into. And so he alleged equality, and he was jealous over Christ's position in heaven. So, when he begins telling us false tales, if Lucifer repents and submits, what will that mean in heaven? Will Lucifer take ownership of his lies, acknowledge the truth that he is a created being, that Christ is divine, they are different, they're not the same, will the confusion that his lies were causing be cleared up? There'll be no need for Christ to have to demonstrate that, then will there? But when his lies persisted, mankind fell into the lies. It says in Desire of Ages, page 761, that man was in a different position than that of Lucifer. Lucifer sinned in the light of God's glory. To him, as to no other created being, was given a, a revelation of God's character of love. But man was deceived uh, by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. There is hope for man in... You go read it, Desire of Ages, 761. A revelation of God's character of love. We could be won back to trust, but there is no more truth about God's character to be revealed to Lucifer once he rejected it, sinning in the full light of God's glory, understanding his character, his goodness. It says this choice was final. There was no more God could do to save him. But man had been deceived by the heights, by the, by the sophistry of Satan. And there was hope for us in the revelation of God's character of love. So Christ came to accomplish two things once man sinned. Why we needed Christ and why Christ could save us. But Christ could not save Lucifer because Lucifer had rejected all the truth, hardened his heart. He was incurable. He couldn't be reached. Mankind, however, was deceived. We didn't understand the fullness of the height and depth of God's love. There was hope for us in a revelation of God's character. We could be won back to trust. And in trust, we could receive the victory that Christ achieved for us at the cross. A renewed heart and a right spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So don't go out of here saying that I'm teaching all Christ had to do was reveal truth. No, that's not for us. He had to reveal truth to win us to trust. But he also had to destroy sinfulness in humanity and restore righteousness into humanity, which he did in his life. And though he shares that with us. His life becomes our life. Does that make sense? Amen. All right, let's close the prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you are this incredible, gracious, and loving God. And we have no need to fear you and be terrified and, and that you just want us to come back into a trusting, loving relationship where, where you will heal and restore us to be like you. We open our hearts now and ask that you will help our minds put together the pieces of your word that we have studied our whole life. Uh, help us see the, the cohesive whole that, that is 
represented in the life of Christ, then we can see your character fully, become like you, and become effective witnesses sharing your love in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.